0: Welcome everybody to Crystal Kylan, friends. We have an awesome show for you today. So we have um, an amazing author coming on to talk about the drug war and the election in Colombia, which is a fascinating topic to me because we're seeing there what we've seen in other places around the world, which is like this rise of at least, in theory, anti-establishment candidates.
1: Right. So it's pretty stunning there. And I'm anxious to hear from him because he's an a incredible journalist, incredible author. He wrote a great book called Kilo um, that I just finished that goes in depth in, like, the drug wars in Colombia, the cartels, starting from the people who plant the coca plant and what their rational, what their motives are and why they end up in that situation. The people who pick it, the people who process it, the people who, you know, know, the drug lords, then the people on the other side of it, the Coast Guard and the police who were trying to interdict this uh, this cocaine. So he has very in-depth knowledge of the way that the drug war has shaped Colombia uh, and the violence endemic to that. But then he also has deep insights into the, the political landscape there. And so what just happened in the first round of the uh, Colombian presidential election is that uh, a left-wing candidate, which is very unusual for Colombia, actually was the top vote getter. But the even more shocking thing is this dude who's being called a right wing populist who ran on this anti-corruption platform. I will not call him a right
0: wing populist for reasons I'll get to. Also
1: is being investigated for corruption himself um, and is now backed up by the sort of right wing establishment forces. He rocketed past the dude who was kind of the heir apparent of the political powers and elite class and their political project that has been in power for multi-decades in Colombia. So the guy who was like the heir apparent didn't even make the runoff. And so now you have a runoff between the, you know, sort of uh, lefty candidate and this uh, guy who came out of nowhere, multimillionaire businessman, of course, being compared to Donald Trump and all of that.
0: Yeah. But he also said, and I'm not kidding about this, he said he was a fan of Adolf Hitler. Yes.
1: Yes. Hard pass. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care
0: about the rest of what your what your platform is or whatever. Yeah, so.
1: well, also we'll, we'll get into it. We'll, <laughs> That's
0: a bridge too far. We'll buddy. get into
1: it with Toby Muse is the name of our guest, and um, he'll have a lot of interesting things to say about about this dude. But he he genuinely like was unknown until a few weeks before the election, is my understanding, and just rocketed past the establishment.
0: Will he be able to give us an awesome cocaine hookup? <laughs>
1: We can talk to him about that.
0: Okay, let's do that off air. Yeah. But I don't want to break any federal laws. Anyway. Okay. All right, so a lot of stuff to get to, though, before we dive into the interview. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, there's a viral story about her going around now because uh, she was doing a little commentary thing that blew up on social media. And uh, in no uncertain terms, she basically says that straight people will soon be extinct. So here I'll give you, so there's is in, in Newsweek here, they say, Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene's latest comments on sexuality have gone viral on social media. Uh, Greene, who last week won her Republican primary, was speaking during her latest broadcast, MTG Live. Um, in a clip from the broadcast, Greene claimed that heterosexual people would soon be extinct. Let me give you the exact quote. She said, quote, They just want you to think that all of a sudden the entire population is steadily turning gay or turning trans, she said. Just generation, a generation, probably in about four or five generations, no one will be straight anymore. Everyone will be either gay or trans or non-conforming or whatever the list of 50 or 60 different options there are. So, um, you know, as I read this back now, the first part, it seems like she's making fun of the idea that everybody's
1: turning gay. Right. She yeah. said they
0: just want you to think that all of a sudden the entire population is steadily turning gay or trans. That's probably a reference to the new polling data that came out that showed it is steadily rising people who identify as gay or trans um, or any LGBT. Or buyer. Exactly. Yeah. All mm-hmm. that stuff. Um, so it looks like she's making fun of that but then she says in just a generation probably in about four or five generations no one will be straight anymore. Everyone will be either gay or trans or non-conforming or whatever the list of 50 or 60 different options there are. So...
1: So yeah, is she saying like that's what she actually thinks is gonna happen? Or is she saying that if like this trend is ridiculous because if you believe that this is really happening, then in a few generations we'll have no straight people?
0: I, I so and now after reading it again, yeah. I don't know what she's saying, but there are that idea that like fear mongering over the fact that those numbers are becoming more and more right. is a real thing that I see all the time yes, happening this is on very the right. Common. Yeah, where they're like, well, look at I mean, look at the numbers. And that's why they 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 fear monger about like you're teaching the kids gender ideology. And the concern is, well, if you're teaching them gender ideology, you're basically grooming them to become trans or, or gay or whatever.
1: Right. Yes. And and that language of grooming is used very intentionally. To indicate not just, like, you're turning them gay, but that you're, like, trying to groom them Take to, advantage to of prey them. on them. Yeah, which they, goes back to lots—tons of, you know, vicious tropes about the gay community that have been existed for decades and decades. The thing that I appreciate about Marjorie Taylor Greene is she, like, makes comments like that and illustrates how ridiculous the uh, perspective she's representing is when taken to its logical conclusion. Because anyone looking at that would just be like, what? I've Like— Of course, straight people aren't going to just randomly stop existing. That doesn't even make any sense. So I appreciate the way that she spells things out in a way that is so ridiculous that it ultimately ends up completely undermining whatever port she's trying to make.
0: Well, this is just the new version of when pastors back in, you know, the 2000s and 1990s or whatever, Ted Haggard, John Hagee, all those guys, they would fear monger about homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And at the core of everything they said is like, look, people have a choice. And they could choose the path of sin, which is homosexuality, mm-hmm. or they can choose the path of heterosexuality, which is the the proper choice. But the idea that you have a choice presupposes that you sort of equally want to do both, and then you you get to determine which way you go,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, which
0: is sort of them telling on themselves, which is why we've seen a thousand times over how many times have we seen, you know, well-known televangelists get caught doing crystal meth and blowing some dude in a bathroom, right. Like it happened and Republican politicians who mm-hmm. use the same rhetoric about, gayness now we're seeing the new you know the new version of that is like it's not just oh be afraid everybody's going to turn gay now it's be afraid everybody's going to turn trans as well right and and i think again so what they would point to as evidence for their theories that look the numbers keep going up and up but what i look at that and i see is no the numbers have probably always been around there and now people are just more open to telling the truth about where they actually fall on that spectrum. Right. Does that make sense?
1: Of course. Yeah. I mean, I think that is definitely – I mean, that is definitely a part of what is going on. There's no doubt about that. And then I also just don't understand the moral panic about if the numbers are changing or if there's an increase well, or – you Because know, they're afraid everybody's going to be gay everybody's- or everybody's going to be <laughs> – And that just is – Again, if you're – it it just is a very silly thing to think, and I don't think any normal person would, like, come to that conclusion. The other piece of this is they're in this weird place where, on the one hand, I just saw a poll. I think you sent it to me, actually, that gay marriage has never had higher uh, support. 71%. 71%. Um, So, you know, the, the public is very much moving in the direction with those things of acceptance, at the same time, uh, conservatives have more power than they've had in a long time in terms of the court system. And the uh, decision that is imminent with regard to Roe also opens the door to rolling back some of the landmark civil rights cases and the landmark uh, Obergefell case and the right to for gay people to be able to get married. So they're both at the same time feeling like under attack culturally, like they sort of are losing these battles and also like they have a stronger hand to play than ever before. So you see both of those things kind of uh, playing out in a, a strange way.
0: Yeah, I think I think there's truth in that. Um, ultimately, I would like Marjorie Taylor Greene to answer whether or not she has any same-sex attraction or is uh, curious about being trans. Because again, if everybody's going to be if everybody's going to be that in a few generations, because everybody's being taught that, like, yeah. have you ever thought about, hey, maybe I should go down that path? Ah, oh, no, that's a sin. Yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to know what she actually thinks about it, but you're never going to get that straight answer because, look, ultimately, straight when it comes answer. down to it, <laughs> ultimately when it comes <laughs> down to it, either people are, you know, quote unquote, born that way, right, for being trans, being gay, what have you, or when you're a kid in a developmental phase. You have some sort of experience that doesn't have to be sexual in nature, but some sort of experience that leads you to your sexuality. But then it's sort of concrete and set in stone. What I certainly what I'm 100 percent convinced it isn't is just totally blank slate at any point in your life. You could just pick what you know what you're into, what you're not into, because I challenge everybody out there right now. Think about whatever you're into sexually or, you know, whatever you, however you identify, right. you can't just, just wake up on a random Tuesday and be like, I don't like that anymore. I'm yeah. going go to go. No, it just it Did doesn't work like a, that. A
1: kindergarten teacher who, like, mentions that they're gay married. Is that going to be like, ah, now I'm now I'm gay. That's what's happening.
0: So uh, it it's not it's not a choice like they think it is an idea that all of it you know, everybody's going to well, not and, be straight in a couple generations. generations right. on this base that's, absurd.
1: That's what I mean by how they're in this weird place, because I sort of felt like we'd moved past that, like that I, that debate over whether it's a choice. And now they're kind of leaning back into well, that argument, especially with regards, I think, to trans people.
0: Well, that's how they hook themselves back into it that everybody sort of, they gave up on the gay thing because, again, the polls are so overwhelming and people are like, yeah, I guess that is kind of, some percentage of the population is going to be gay. It's kind of natural. Yeah. But now with the trans thing, they think, they go right back to all the same arguments they used to use about gayness. They're using them against trans Trans people people. too. Right. Like, you know, oh, it's degeneracy and it's gender ideology and you're trying to trick kids into I mean, you say this all the time about gay people. Like, oh, you're, you know, you're tricking the kids into being gay or whatever.
1: Yeah. You know? There's a lot of resistance to so they try to step around, oh, we're we're actually only talking about trans ideology. Um, but like, for example, the, the Florida law that was called the uh, Don't Say Gay Bill, that applies across the board. It's not limited to any particular part of the LGBTQ um, spectrum. So they're trying to, because there is still actually a fair amount of public acceptance of trans people at this point. Like Republicans are not even on the right side of public opinion on that issue either. But there's more skepticism there. So they're trying to couch it in like we're just talking about this segment of the population when in reality the implications are a lot broader than that.
0: So on the don't say gay bill, what are the things that the argument that DeSantis makes is what? Oh, they're teaching our kids about homosexuality and teaching them about transgenderism no, and that's not OK? No, not
1: about that at all. He says this is just about parental choice. This is just about not sexualizing kids. Um, The law itself is written in a way that is very vague, which is part of why it led to such a sort of, I mean, that, that piece of it was intentional. But basically the idea is it bans the teaching of any sort of sex ed from, I can't remember the grades, kindergarten to eighth grade or something like that. And the ages that it talked about It was already banned in Florida Mm -hmm. schools. So they were making this like more explicit. There's some piece in there about, you know, parents having more control over able to sue uh, classrooms and teachers where they thought that, you know, there was some sort of gender or sexual ideology being taught. And because it's so broad, it raised questions about whether even things like, you know, if you are – if you are gay and you have a, t- a picture on your desk of you and your partner, you and your husband or wife, is that – does that cons- count uh, You know, in terms of the bill? Is that now criminalized? So anyway, that's that's what that is.
0: Yeah, I think like the, the sense I got from that whole debate is that there's a descriptive prescriptive thing going on where people on the left think like, look, when this stuff gets brought up, it's more descriptive. Like you said, you know, hey, what, what does gay mean like or, you know, what – Oh, who's that? That's my husband. Oh, well, you're a boy. How does that work? And then you explain it. So it's like a descriptive thing where I think the right views all this stuff as no, no, no. You're prescribing things to the kids. Like you're saying, look, I am gay and therefore maybe you should be too. It's one of those things. And so I think that's where right. that's where the disconnect is. Where well,
1: And this also came directly out of like the libs of TikTok and right. Christopher Rufo well, who are who are. The overarching um messaging to their base is that there's this massive problem in the schools of teachers who are grooming kids.
0: And I think they find, the outliers on that libs of TikTok account. Yes, they find like course. some psychologically unbalanced teachers who sometimes say ridiculous things, but then the right takes that and uses it as like, no, this is what every public school is like. And this is what they're teaching your kids across the board.
1: That's right. You that's know? right. Yeah. Th- no, that's a hundred percent the case. And even DeSantis I think it was like his comms director um, explicitly said, this is about like keeping teachers from grooming kids. And so that's what they, but then DeSantis, when he's pressed on, okay, is this about like gay teachers? Is this about trans teachers? Oh no, no, no! It's just about parental choice. So that's right. What so your
0: right sense there. is it's a moral panic basically going on.
1: Uh, absolutely. Right. No doubt about it. Okay. Yes.
0: All right. Well, uh, now let's go from one genius to another genius. Yes. So Marjorie Taylor Green, or excuse me, we already—it's uh, Dave Rubin. So mm-hmm. Dave Rubin um, decided to give everybody access to his very big a brain <laughs> and um, tell everybody about his his glorious genius economic theory. So let's take a look at that.
2: If the government can just print money, right, and deficits mean nothing, then money doesn't mean anything. It's the stuff we actually produce. What would really be the best way to get the economy going right now? It is so obvious and so easy, and that's why it's never discussed. You know what you do? You'd cut government spending and you'd cut Taxes, period. How about we cut taxes on literally every single person in the United States? Everybody. I'm, I'm just, I'm literally just throwing this out there. Crazy Dave with one of his crazy proclamations. How about we cut taxes 25% on every single person? Every single person across the board, federal, state, local, whatever it might be. You're going to have 25% more money to do whatever you want with. Do you think that might get the economy going because then people would start spending more money again? And as people spend more money than the prices of things, because there's more economic activity might go down, but they'll never do that, right? They'll never do that. What they'll say is, oh, we'll print more money. We'll somehow give you more money. Or if we could just punish billionaires more, they'll never Five, talk seven. about their own spending. How about we just starve the beast? That's the
0: answer. So I, I needless to say, I have a lot to say about this. Yes. Um, He says, you know, his plan to get the economy going is cut government spending and cut taxes. What he doesn't appear to recognize at all is that if you cut government spending, that is confiscatory to the private economy. In other words, public deficits equal private expansion. Right. That's the whole point of when you run a public deficit, it's to get the private economy going. Yes. And he flips it. He says, no, if you cut government spending... That somehow makes the economy expand? There's no economic theory which backs up what he's saying, which is... So he likes to fancy himself more along the school of thought of, you know, Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman and an Austrian economic school of thought. The thing that's so frustrating about Dave Rubin to me is that he doesn't even understand the theory that he's espousing. But even if he did, that theory would be wrong. But he doesn't even get the basics of that theory.
1: Right. So his diagnosis of why we have inflation is exclusively tied to the pandemic spending programs that you had these deficits, you had the government spending money and too much money in people's pockets and that causes inflation, right? But then his answer to that is to give people more money to spend, which is exactly what he said in his view caused the inflation. I mean, the part where you realize how mind-numbingly stupid what he's saying is is when he says, as people spend more money, The prices of things will go down, which is like the polar opposite of just like the day one thing you learn in economics about supply and demand. People have more money. They spend more money. Oh, people that that causes the prices to go up. Now, what he obviously leaves completely out of any of this analysis is the fact that, you know, one of the major factors, not the only factor, but one of the major factors in inflation has, in fact, been corporate price gouging. And the fact that you have this monopoly pricing power across multiple industries that has allowed corporations to rake in record-breaking Profits while all of you are out there suffering. They are literally on shareholder calls, CEOs, telling their people we were able to raise prices above and beyond what was required because consumers have no choice and they expect inflation, so they have, so they are willing to take it. And since you do have this monopoly consolidation, you have all of this pricing power. So that is completely left out of the analysis. He doesn't even talk about, you know, some of the supply chain issues, which could be ameliorated by things like, you know, lifting wages so we have more. Um, More people willing to go into the trucking industry, again, going after some of this uh, monopoly consolidation in the uh, freight shipping industries, things like that. Um, You know, the meat processors, all of those pieces he's, he's not interested in whatsoever. Instead, he offers this completely nonsensical idea of what he thinks would solve the problem.
0: So a few points on the supply chain leading to inflation. One of the solutions on that is we'll switch up the supply chain, do more manufacturing here in the US so you're right. not dependent on foreign countries to do it. Now in order to do that, you would need to bring back protectionist policies. Yes. which flies in the face of free trade dogma, which is part and parcel of his ideology. Right. So I'll I'll ask Dave. Hey man, do you want to combat inflation by fighting back against this supply chain crisis? Should we bring back tariffs for goods that are imported and start investing tax money to build up factories here because that would be a solution, but that's protectionism and you think protectionism is bad. So that's one thing that I would say. The other thing is when he says we should cut taxes 25% on every person. Okay, but the bottom roughly 50% of the country pays no federal taxes because they're too poor to pay it. They can't afford it. Right. So if he says, let's give them a 25% subsidy, (laughs) I'll sign right up for that right now, brother. (laughs) I'll make that deal with you right now. Because the Republican plan rolled out by Rick Scott was that everybody's got to have skin in the game. So let's raise taxes on the bottom 50% of the country. Right. Uh, And the other thing is, if you think cutting taxes 25% for the top 1% of the country is going to lead to them spending more, all the empirical data we have flies in the face of that argument. What they do is they put it in their bank account.
1: Right. Because that's all they do. Yeah. Because they're already amassed so much like if you were poor, you're spending a larger proportion of your income in what comes in. And that's just the way that works.
0: Right. So, I mean, look, again, what I would say to Dave is, for the love of God, if you're going to do the whole like, you know, I'm the right wing guy, I'm the libertarian economics guy, at least understand the libertarian arguments because he doesn't. He doesn't understand any of it.
1: Yeah. Well, he, he has these two um, sort of like Republican catchphrases in his mind. On the one hand, it's like, Deficits, government spending, bad.
0: Cutting taxes, good.
1: Cutting taxes, good.
0: Those and so. do totally we contradict each other?
1: Right. Well, and so right. So he wants to say like, oh, well, the inflation is caused by the the government spending, but then he also has to fit in there the other piece of his economic knowledge, which is that tax cuts are inherently good not understanding that that completely contradicts what he's saying there. (laughs) You know, like if you're saying the spending is causing the inflation, you can't also say that's why we need to spend more to stop the inflation.
0: This is something that has always driven me nuts about the argument from the, you know, the supply side or trickle down economics crowd. And I've been pointing this out for a decade. Their two biggest things are, you know, deficits are bad, but also cutting taxes is good. Well, hold on. How would you, at least in part, Reduce a deficit, you raise taxes to 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 get rid of the deficit, yeah, that's one of the ways you do it and they would right. also say cut spending. you can only cut spending so much before you get into like. Sorry, Medicare gone, Medicaid gone, Social Security. We gotta, you know, we gotta get put that on the table.
1: They also came up with this whole fantasy accounting system of like, well, if we cut taxes, then people are gonna invest more, and they're gonna generate, yeah, but more they made it up, and they're right, they and made so it up. then you're gonna get more tax revenue.
0: He even said it. You unleash the beast of the private economy when you do that. But hold on, one second. Ronald Reagan did exactly the thing that you're calling for doing right now, and he had record debts and deficits. George W. Bush, same thing. He had his whole Bush tax cuts package, which is right in line with the philosophy right. that, that he just put out there. And George W. Bush had over a trillion dollars in an annual deficit at one point during his administration. This idea that, no, actually, you increase the revenue to the government by cutting the tax rate, that never comes to fruition. So it's just not true. They use this, like, fantasy math calculating system where they just make it up. Yeah. And then they never acknowledge when they're wrong.
1: And also, somehow he imagines money in people's hands when it's like the government gives you the money, like the stimulus check.
0: Mm -hmm. That's bad.
1: That's bad. But money in your hands. If
0: they just cut taxes.
1: That's somehow totally different and good and has some completely opposite effect on the economy somehow and on inflation somehow.
0: Because, Crystal, he doesn't understand any of this. He doesn't understand any of it. Yeah. He's just like the world's laziest propagandist. That's pretty clear.
1: Yeah. What does it say about us that he's been very successful? What? What does it say about the country?
0: Well, he. it's not about the country. It's about the niche he found. So his whole thing was like, look, I was part of TYT, and uh, so I was this progressive guy. I was a Bernie Sanders guy, and then I saw the light, and I saw that these progressives are crazy, and then... What happened is over time he he inched over time to the right. At mm-hmm. first he went from like, you know, I'm a I'm on the left to like, no no no, I'm a liberal to like, no, no no, I'm a centrist to now it's, you know, he doesn't even hide the fact that he's basically a conservative Republican, you know? But it was people on the right are going to love that conversion story. They're mm-hmm. going to love the idea like you were an idiot and now you're not because you're with us. So he was welcomed with open arms by that crowd. And it's understandable because again, He's an argument that, you know, you can trot out to other people who actually are on the left, like, pfft, you should have been intelligent like this guy Dave, where he eventually saw the light and started believing the correct things like we believe in.
1: Do you, is there so, anyone that has, like, a parallel? Is there, like, a parallel thing on the left?
0: Somebody, Somebody who, who... Yeah, Hunter Avalon is one. He did it. He was a hardcore right-wing guy, and then eventually he's... Uh, he's now on the left pretty solidly. There's There have been examples of that, but he doesn't, you know... Think about it. If you go left... You don't get the giant contracts and you don't get the endless amount of money flowing in. yeah, uh, look, if you're on if you're actually on the left, by definition, you're trying to hold the powerful accountable. Like you're going after the centers of power in our country, yeah, like capital, for instance. Mm-hmm. So if you go after capital, if you want to raise taxes on the wealthy, if you you know, you want to regulate corporations, then you're not going to get any money from like corporations or big money interests because you're directly opposed to those big money interests. So it never works out. That's why the people on the left. I think most of them actually believe the shit they're saying because there's nothing in it. There's nothing to gain in it if you're on the left. I mean, maybe you can make an argument that on certain social issues, you you know, you could get a a benefit if you go in that direction.
1: But directly cutting yourself from corporate ad money. That's what you're doing, you know?
0: I mean, we literally cut ourselves (laughs) from that money. When we did this podcast, we're like, no, let's do it all small-dollar donations. I don't want to read an ad. I think that's soulless plus, you know, what advertisers would want to, you know. Yeah,
1: whereas if you did the right turn, then you can, like, do every, you know, read every ad off on the thing and feel like it's consistent with your principles and what you're on. Expects. He
0: made a deal with the Koch brothers. Really? Yeah, he had a deal with the Koch brothers. Um, obviously, the whole with PragerU, he was in bed with them for a while. I don't know if he still is, but, you know, he did the whole like why I left the left video, which, be, you know, mo- however many millions of views. And Dennis Prager literally said to him, no, I like the fact that you call yourself a liberal. Because you're useful to us when you say I'm a liberal, but the conservatives right about everything. Mm. And Dennis Prager said it's the same thing with me as as a Jew. Like I'm a Jew, but I say those conservative Christians sure are right about everything. And they say I like it that you're a Jew and you say those things. Mm.
1: So that's interesting.
0: It's the role. It's the role that he plays. You know, I, I think there are there are people who have a similar story to him that I think are more genuinely believe it but for him yeah. i think he just looked for that lane and saw, ah, i found uh, something i saw could the, do
1: the business opportunity there
0: right and i've i've told the story before but back when he was with tyt network and i was too you know we were friendly and we would chat every now and then and he was the f- first and only person in this business who ever said to me in any way shape or form he we were uh dming and he was like uh so what's your end goal tv you want to get a tv show and I thought that was so weird. I was like, no, I like, you know, I like what I'm doing. I like the freedom. I like the independence. I'm doing it for the sake of what it is. Like I'm doing it for the process of what it is. I'm not trying to get to some promised land. This is the promised land. Just waking up and doing the thing I love every day, talking about things I find important. Yeah. And you could tell for him that was not that's not the idea. The idea was like, how do I cash in. How do I get to that end goal? How do I get, you know, my name in lights? It was more like, I got to get that fame. It's not about for the ideology of the thing.
1: I also think that there's something in the, um, Republican sort of like in their, Fables and in the the right wing mythology that um, finds the particular like the conversion story very appealing because they have this idea that people who are on the left are just like idiots and fools. And when you grow up, right. you're going to realize the way that the world really works. And so when you have examples like uh, Dave Rubin, Candace Owens also used to be, I guess, nominally on the left or a Democrat or something like that. When you have people who fit into that model, it also reaffirms this like some of the bedrock fairy tales that they tell themselves about their movement.
0: Of course. Meanwhile, if you're somebody who... Was right, and then you move to the left. The left is like, I don't fucking believe you. Get yeah, the fuck well, out of here. You can yeah, actually we'll be on the left your... your whole life, and they'll be like, I don't believe you.
1: Yeah, no, we'll, get out. <laughs> we'll, d- we'll like dig up your whatever you wrote on your blog in you know right. two thousand and one, mm-hmm. and hold it against you for the entire rest of your life. That's that's, right. what, that's, that's what we like to do. Big difference. <laughs> all right, guys. I'm very excited to get to you our guest today, an expert on all things Columbia. Um, from the elections that they just had, also wrote a fabulous book. Was that Mary? That was me. Um. Also also wrote a fabulous book uh, called *Kilo* about the drug trade, which has a lot of importance. I
0: just let me just interrupt you real quick because it's funny. Yeah, that was from Uber, and it was some Pride Month shit. <laughs> I'm now a conservative <laughs> Christian. Thank you.
1: Apologies mm. to Marjorie Taylor Greene; she was right. No. <laughs> All right, let's get right to our guest, Toby Muse. Here he is. And joining us now is Toby Muse. Great to meet you, Toby. Welcome.
3: Thank you for the invite. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, of course. So uh, I've mentioned already a couple of times you wrote a phenomenal book called Kilo um, that we're going to get into here in a minute. But uh, to start with, I wanted you to bring us up to speed on the first round of the Colombian presidential elections. Just give everybody the sort of primer of who are the characters, what happened and what do you expect to happen next?
3: So to kind of set the stage, uh, Colombia's gone through this really uh, kind of radical times in the last kind of years. There's this desire for change in the country. We saw huge demonstrations on the streets. that would sometimes turn fatal with the police uh, killing many of the protesters. But it was this cry from so much of the country a need to change. So we were heading into this election in 2022, really with that being the slogan of everybody. Things have to change in Colombia. The crime is too high. Political power is too concentrated in too few hands. The economy is not doing as well as it should do. More of the richness of the country needs to be shared. That's kind of the slogan going into the election. So everybody thinks this is the election of this left-wing candidate, Gustavo Petro. So he's run for president before. He's a former guerrilla. He demobilized. He came out of a guerrilla group called M19. It was seen as a more of a kind of intellectual guerrilla group, rather more than a bloodthirsty guerrilla group. He becomes a senator, really becomes a very extraordinarily um, impressive senator. He becomes mayor of Bogota between 2012, 2015. But he's seen as a far left candidate. He's the one, as we go into this election, everybody's thinking, is he going to win in the first round of voting? I.e., will he get more than 50% plus one vote? Or if he does go to the second round, which would see the final two candidates, will he then win? Everybody is kind of assuming he is going to win. So we have this candidate, we have this campaign. And seemingly out of nowhere, this candidate called Rodolfo. Hernandez, the engineer, as he likes to call himself, this extraordinarily wealthy businessman who had served as a mayor in an eastern uh, city of Bucaramanga of Colombia, he surges in the polls. So he is kind of seen as an unconventional political, um, political figure. He doesn't belong to any political party. He keeps on talking about how independent he is, how he's his own man, And so the final vote comes out that Gustavo Petro wins 40% of the vote, Hernandez wins 28%. That means those two figures are going into the next round. Now, as you see those two votes, you think, well, Petro wins 40%. He by far won more votes than anyone else in the first round. The problem people think with Petro is that is his ceiling. Mm. Essentially, everybody else in the second round is now going to unify around this figure of Hernandez, so the next vote is going to be in around june the 19th and now the betting seems to be that it is going to be Hernandez who is going to win the um is going to win the election
0: let me let me uh ask you because i see the person who came in third is uh federico gutierrez and he got t- about 22 percent of the vote um What are his politics? Does he represent like the old neoliberal centrist guard or what?
3: No. So he was, he, this was, and it's kind of interesting, just a little bit of context in, for the past 20 years, the dominant political force in Colombian politics has been Uribismo. That is this, uh, some would say almost a cult of politics around the figure of the former president, Álvaro Uribe. That was the candidate of the previous government from 20, Eighteen, Sorry, the existing government, 2018 to 2022, that's Ivan Duque, the president. He comes out of that movement of Uribismo. Now, the desire for change is so much that Federico Gutierrez was clearly the candidate of Uribismo, but he kind of denied it because at this point that brand of politics is seen as so tarnished. He didn't want to be the figure representing Uribismo, but clearly he was identified as the right-wing candidate in this. And I think what was happening was, and this is why Petra miscalculated, I think Petra was ready to fight a candidate he could say, you represent the establishment, Mm. you represent um, uh, Uribismo, you represent a continuation of this government which has been a black hole of just a complete four years wasted it's just lost four years for colombia petro was ready for that in the second round what he wasn't ready for was this candidate hernandez to come out of nowhere and to be um and to be to be himself claiming change and i mean just to give you an idea of how quickly this candidate came out of nowhere uh, hernandez's vice presidential candidate When I checked a few days ago, she had something like two and a half thousand followers on Twitter. This campaign has just rocketed from nowhere to become the sensation of Colombian politics. But Federico Gutierrez, really, his poor showing, he was expected to come in second place. His poor showing really shows how damaged as a brand that brand of right wing politics are in 2022 Colombia.
1: Can you go into more depth on that? What is it that people found uh, just totally want to reject about that brand of politics?
3: Well, again, it has been the dominant, um, the dominant force. I mean, I would say of the past five elections, since the appearance of Alvaro Uribe himself as a presidential candidate in uh, 2002, Uribismo has won four of the five elections. So it's been this dominant force. And really, if you are complaining about Colombia, today, if you are demanding change in Colombia today, essentially, you are demanding a change from the policies that have been implemented by this two decades of power, almost two decades, 15 years of ruling this country. It's seen that security has completely fallen apart in the countryside. Remember, we had this impressive peace deal signed in 2016 between the Colombian government and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, known as the FARC. And there was this window of optimism in Colombia that year and the following year. But because of the government of Iván Duque coming in, they always rejected that peace process. They've come in and we've seen the security, which was supposed to be a new chapter, a new history of the countryside where the civil war had been fought the hardest. Well, all of the security has deteriorated. Now we have so many guerrilla, individual guerrilla groups dotted across the country. Uh, In terms of the economy, the economy is not doing as well as it should be. But it gets to that point of where a political movement is just exhausted. The movement itself was so exhausted, they couldn't even come up with their own candidate. They looked around and they looked at one candidate from within the movement. They looked at another and they just knew it wasn't going to really cut it with the voters. And the final thing, we've seen these massive protests by young people on the streets of Colombia in recent years. And I think that had kind of pushed... The window of where left-wing politics were in that country. When you are demanding change, you can't be representing Urabismo. Urabismo is more of the same, and I think Colombians just want a change. And a final thing, I think, which was the miscalculation, perhaps, in terms of when we do an autopsy of what may have gone wrong with the campaign of Gustavo Petro, was that Uh, uh, being overly confident about how many young people were going to come out to vote for Mm. him. His support among the young people is overwhelming, but on election day, I would be curious to see those figures, how many actually made it to uh, the voting booth.
0: So let me ask you this, just to contextualize this for people, would you say, is it fair to compare Rodolfo Hernandez to like a Bolsonaro figure or a Trump-like figure? And is it also fair to compare... Uh, Petro to Jeremy corbin or, or Bernie Sanders,
3: yeah, those are interesting comparisons, especially the Petro one. Let's start with Hernandez. I think Hernandez, it There are many similarities and there are differences as well. And, you know, I sound like I'm hedging a little bit, but that's just the truth. Hernandez does come out of this idea of I am not the politician. Uh, I don't I don't owe anybody anything. I am independently wealthy. So he pulled something that we saw Trump do, by the way, which was when he was mayor of Bucaramanga, he said, I won't take a salary. I don't need it. I'm already wealthy. I'm going to give the money back. So there's these little gestures. But on the other hand, he, he, he doesn't. He's not seeking to antagonise the press in this overly aggressive campaign that we see from someone like Bolsonaro or Trump, aiming to be. He's not looking to be outrageous. I think in a way that Trump constantly needed that. You know, something that what's what's Trump going to do next? You know, the media and voters just couldn't stop looking. What's he going to do? What? Hernandez isn't looking so much for that. Since he's won the first round, he's actually appeared. He's tried to come across as quite moderate. He's uh, tried to be quite conciliatory. Um, But there is that aspect of, because I'm a non-politician, I don't owe any political party any favors. So he almost likes to show himself as perhaps being a political, what is it, jackdaw or magpie. That I can take the best from the left. I can take the best from the right. And so he can come across as quite an attractive um, candidate. Oh, you know, he's sensible. He's rejecting these false divisions of left or right. But the question is, how is he going to pass that legislation? if he becomes president. Well, the battle lines are already being drawn in Colombian politics. The left is on one side. All of the right has already rallied around him. So when it comes to any legislation, he is going to be focused on appeasing the right to get his legislation through. So he's mentioned some interesting things, going back to that thing about kind of selecting a policy from the left, from the right. He told the US ambassador in bogota which is this incredibly important figure in colombia given colombia prides itself on being um america's the united States' greatest ally in south america it's kind of likes to see itself as a bridge between the u.s and the rest of south america but also colombia has received billions of dollars in anti-narcotics um a to fight the war on drugs but Hernandez went to see rodolfo Hernandez went to see the u.s ambassador and he said to him I would like to end the drug war, okay I mean that's interesting it's a it's a kind of it's rare do you hear it from a leading um figure of Colombian politics, although Gustavo Petro would also like to do that. Another thing that Hernandez has said he would like to see the full implementation of that two thousand and sixteen peace deal with the far left rebels of the FARC. The current government has dragged its feet on that. But again, it comes down to if he's trying to legislate, will the right wing let him end the war on drugs? Mm. No. Will the right wing allow him to fully implement a peace deal that they detest with every cell of their DNA? No. So I think there is this kind of thing of Hernandez being this non-politician. I think that does tap into a Trump-Bolsonaro, but I think he is going to have to end up running very closely to the right wing now again he denies this he's but again it kind of he says uh, he just recently said in an interview um i don't need congress to get my legislation through well you do i mean that's just not i mean that's not debatable it's not a conversation you do need congress to get so i think there is this kind of thing and it's he's kind of seen to be not very knowledgeable about certain things he didn't know where a province of columbia was and it's actually quite close to him um and then to show you how colombian politics are in 2022 he ends up winning that province more than anyone he gets that the this outstanding is, votes in that this province. is the most trumpian
0: <laughs> shit i've ever heard yeah. in my life yeah didn't he make up kansas city yeah. is he thought it was in kansas
1: well, i don't remember right but that sounds about right yeah, yeah. well uh, so i also read something toby about he had floated the idea of sort of like suspending like almost like instituting martial law to uh yep. to thoroughly implement his anti-corruption agenda and at the same time while he's saying, you know, basically we need to jail all the corrupt politicians something which I'm sure, you know, is popular here, probably popular there as well. Um he also is himself under investigation for uh potential corruption. Can you speak to a couple of those things?
3: Exactly. So, I mean, corruption in Colombia is I mean, some people say it's the root of everything. Everything that has gone wrong in that country, corruption is felt every single day. It angers so many Colombians. It's felt to be the cause of all of its problems. Everybody wants to be the one carrying the flag and running on the front of that war against corruption. And that's been a central tenant of his campaign. And in fact, it became a way of him avoiding really getting in to having to learn about policies. Whenever he was asked about anything, he would be asked about, schooling or education, he would say, well, the problem has been corruption. We're going to investigate all of these corrupt contracts about how the school food is uh, organized, who is bought from. What would you do about, you know, shake up of the civil servants? Well, you know, this is about corruption. And it was just this way of dodging any question. So yes, I think that really has chimed with Colombian voters. They despise corruption. And yes, he is facing these investigations into his conduct. Now, he says, He's not under investigation for corruption. And um, he says there is no evidence. Now, Colombian media reporting says that he is under investigation for corruption and that there is evidence. And it seems to involve a contract for trash removal in the city he comes from, Bucaramanga. But at the moment, it just, this is doesn't seem to be sticking with him. I think Colombians are I think many Colombians are engaged by this man who seems to be kind of speaking. uh, It it just seems to be a frank speaker. And Mm. I think so you have these kind of two ways of looking at how Colombia is constructed at the moment and this desire for change. You have there are many things to criticize about Gustavo Petro, but he has this idea of change and speaking to the poor about I am going to implement these policies to reduce poverty, to redistribute some of the richness of Colombia. This is my um, gesture towards change. This is my hearing you that you want change in Colombia. Another way of approaching, taking that anger is to say, hey, I'm with you, as Hernandez is doing. Guys in the town, I'm with you, you and me against the elites. He says he's going to work for the poor, but you know, again, the actual policies he's providing that he's offering up, don't really seem to be offering up that much of a change. And all of the establishment has already rallied around Hernandez. So his claims of being the candidate of change, I mean, it's, you know, we'll see.
0: So, um, again, to get back to to Petro, would you, we could make the Bernie Sanders or or, uh, Jeremy Corbyn comparison, but actually let me introduce another one for you. AMLO, is he similar to AMLO of Mexico? Um, Or is he similar, what was, who's the Bolivian president who was ousted
1: evo morales
0: Morales. because um he's tried to sort of distance himself from maduro of venezuela uh he previously supported venezuela but he tried to distance himself and but he still maintains the position of like hey look we should open up you know bilateral relations with the venezuelan government and he's also been really critical of the neoliberal order of of colombia so talk a little bit about some of those comparisons are they fair are they not fair etc
3: Exactly. I I think, I think absolutely Petro would see himself as part of this kind of international group that would include Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn 100%. I think, um, he has, he comes out, as I said, comes out of this tradition of being a rebel. Then he kind of moved into civilian life. Uh, he does support opening relations with Venezuela, but also so does Hernandez. Um, This policy with Venezuela is widely recognized as just having been a failure. The Colombian government, the U.S., just spent all of this time backing this alternative president, Juan Guaidó. Nothing's really come of it. And, you know, again, this was another embarrassment of the uh, government of Iván Duque, the president of Colombia, at some point, I think it was back in 2018, 2019. He said the hours of the government of uh, uh, Nicolás Maduro are counted. You Mm -hmm. know, he's going to fall from power any moment. Well, here we are in 2022. (laughs) Iván Duque is leaving office and Maduro is going to keep on. Venezuela is an incredibly important part of the political landscape in Colombia. It's just as they used to batter the left in Colombian political arena with, oh, you're just a gorilla wearing a suit. You're just a gorilla wearing a tie. It was this huge anchor around the left in Colombia for decades. You know, they could never wipe that stain off them of being associated with these guerrillas who were kidnapping people who were, you know, fighting in the countryside who would leave car bombs around the country. Now it's been the, um, the attack on Petro has been, well, you're going to turn Venezuela into, sorry, you're going to turn Colombia into Venezuela. And that's real in a way it's kind of abstract here. When Marco Rubio will say something about Venezuela, well, it's abstract. Colombia has been one of the largest recipients of of a, a humanitarian crisis on the planet with these Venezuelans who just walk out of the country. When I was preparing my book on the Colombian drug trade, I was right up on the border with Venezuela in in Colombia. I was in the coca fields. All of the coca pickers were now from Venezuela. And every single day it was out. It was like something out of, of mice and men. You would see these families just walking along the path and they were going to walk for two, three, four weeks. They weren't ever going to catch a bus. They didn't have money. They had everything they had on their back in a backpack and they were walking for a new future. Millions wow. of Venezuelans now live in Colombia. And I think they also played a role because of their negative experience with Maduro. They became this vocal part in the elections and they would say to Colombians, hey, don't vote for Petro. This mm. is just how Venezuela started. Um, and Petro has rejected this. He said, no, this is not what he's trying to do. I think many of the things were that it was Petro was always seen as being more radical than in fact he was when he was mayor of um, of Bogota. He didn't declare and this becomes some socialist paradise i mean it just it was very uh, it, it, things essentially didn't change there was a lot of drama around him though you know there was changes in personnel i so to sum up petra i think he's painted as this very very radical person who's going to expropriate everything but when you look at his um His manifesto, it's really not that radical. It just simply isn't. There's no mass nationalization. Yes, he wants to raise the taxes on the rich. He thinks that the rich haven't been paying their fair share. And again, I would repeat, Colombia is one of the most unequal countries on the planet. If that is somehow going to change then the rich are going to have to pay a bit more. And so these are the policies of uh, Petro. But again, in the media that is kind of almost uniformly against him, I would say mm. uh, he's often painted as much more radical than yeah. I think he perhaps is. And a, uh, just to find so a point, I, I mean, that's that scrutiny.
0: That's Bernie. That's Bernie so, right there. That's the, that's the exact same thing that happened with Bernie yeah. It is the immigration crisis that you just explained. And I had watched, I think it was like a vice documentary about this a year or two ago. It really is an immigration crisis in Colombia. The Venezuelans yeah. are leaving and going there. Uh, Has that become a big political issue in any way, shape or form? And is, you know, are any of the candidates like we're going to shut that border down like Trump did or do they view it totally differently? Do they view it, you know, as Venezuelans are brothers and sisters and et cetera?
3: I I mean, I think a little bit of background on history. Colombia, when it was this absolute just basket case of madness and violence and narco violence and just massacres every single day, it was uh, so in the 80s and 90s, and the two, early 2000s, this was a, Venezuela was a refuge for Colombians. Mm. Colombians went to Venezuela in their millions. And you would see these families who they just relocated to Venezuela. It was a very oil rich country. So that was the sway of migration at some point when Colombia had some of, you know, the most internally, the highest number of internally displaced people on the planet. Many of those would go over into Venezuela with the implosion of the economy uh, in Venezuela, you've seen the reverse tide. So now you have seen millions of Venezuelans coming into Colombia. I think at the beginning, this is my personal experience in the beginning, I saw this kind of outstretched hand. We're brothers, we're sisters. Um, welcome come in and people would say, Oh yeah, you know, this is great to see Venezuelans. You know, they want to do the jobs that some Colombians don't want to do. And then when it just didn't stop, and in fact, the numbers continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger, then you would see xenophobia. And that's the situation we're in today, this kind of offhanded xenophobia. So uh, when there's complaints about crime in uh, in Bogota, in Medellin, in Cali, you will hear someone say, oh, yeah, a friend of mine was mugged by some Venezuelans. And this xenophobia has now crept into this, uh, the language. Thankfully, that hasn't really become a political tool. You haven't really seen someone run with that, that you know, I'm going to kick the Venezuelans out of this country. Colombia doesn't really go along those political lines. In terms of shutting down the border, I mean, they the border they share is just unmanageable. I mean, this is where a lot of the cocaine leaves from Colombia, leaves via this border that they share. It runs for hundreds and hundreds of miles. They can shut down the official um, the border, the official highways that connect the two, and they often do do that. You know, whenever there's a spat, and at the moment we should say that relations between the two are non-existent, I think. Um, The Colombian government still is abiding by this plan that they consider Juan Guaidó, the president of Venezuela. I mean, you know, it's ridiculous because when there's ever some official need that they have from Venezuela, in theory, they have to address it to Juan Guaidó, who is obviously powerless. So this is the problem you have with this kind of, Farcical for show policy. So, uh, thankfully, the xenophobia hasn't in in kind of got into the bloodstream of political uh, of Colombian politics so far.
1: Talk to me more about um, both of these candidates' view of the war on drugs. Um, You've said, obviously, Petro has a a different view of how to approach things. Hernandez has said he does, but you're skeptical that he's actually going to change the existing policies. So I know what it would mean in the U.S. context to end the war on drugs. When a politician in Colombia says that, what does that actually mean to them?
3: Just the The the, the context is, uh, whenever you meet, you can meet people on the right wing, on the left wing, retired generals, generals still in power. And, you know, you meet them on a Friday night and after the second whiskey, they'll say, yeah, the war on drugs is absolutely unwinnable. And this is a commonplace observation in Colombia because they believe, and I think they're right, no one has bled no one has suffered as much in the war on drugs as Colombia. The former president of Colombia, Juan Manuel Santos, again, who did that peace process with the park in 2016, would say in interviews that he said that the war on drugs was like getting on an exercise bike. You sit there, you pedal for half an hour, you sweat, your legs turn to jelly, you step off, you look, you haven't actually moved one centimeter forward, You've expended all of this energy, all of this time. That's what many people feel the war on drugs is. It's hard to find someone who genuinely believes the war on drugs in Colombia is is any remotely successful. In fact, most Colombians think it's some sort of scam. It's some sort of scam, in fact, just to keep it going. So um, the drugs keep flowing out and it's all corruption, that the money that comes in for that's uh, the army, that they've now become dependent upon this, that they need the war on drugs to keep going. The Americans benefit from this, that they get to have increased control over Colombia. That's another commonplace observation. Are are they wrong about that?
1: Are they wrong in that Uh, (laughs) analysis? I I mean,
3: I, 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 I wouldn't want to get into motivations, but I do think that another commonplace observation would be that to do the same thing and expect a different result is the definition of insanity and colombia has been doing the same thing for the past 20 years with countless thousands of men and women dying in the process and we're still doing the same thing and there's more Colum- cocaine than ever before right if you go back to 2002 the beginning of this plan colombia that you know as we know was a bipartisan thing between the democrats and uh the republicans launched under bill clinton right the initial Goal of that was that they would cut coca crops by 50% after three years. So around about 2005, the plan was to have half of coca that there was. With record amounts of cocaine that is now being produced, now the plan, again, is in five years to cut coca crops by five, uh, by 50%. We we don't move forward like Juan one, one Manuel Santos says. We just go in circles. We are living in the golden age of cocaine. There is more cocaine than ever before on the planet. Pablo Escobar could never have dreamed of this much cocaine out there. And this is after we have spent billions and billions of dollars on trying to destroy that industry. And it's stronger than ever. And that has knock-on effects. It's empowering mafias in Colombia, but it's also empowering criminal organizations across the planet. Cocaine is this kind of white snake that just reaches its tentacles. I'm mixing animals there, but, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, its tentacles reaching across the planet and it has this incredible knock-on effect. And across the planet, by the way, if you connect the dots, you'll see these countries are reporting record amounts of cocaine being seized. It was a couple of years ago, the U S seized in one operation, 20 tons of cocaine in one operation from this boat, go to Germany, They'll seize their own record, Costa Rica, the UK. There's so much of the drug out there. And this is after the US and Colombia have basically had carte blanche to do what they want. They can't claim they didn't have enough. They they just can't claim that. Whatever they want to claim about the failings of the drug war, this surely is the moment where they don't get to say, oh, you know what we need to win the drug war? A little bit more drug war. They've had every toy they wanted. And We've got more cocaine than ever before. Now, I think what goes back into these candidates is a central issue is about um, fumigation. So this has been a central tool in the war on drugs, fumigating the cocoa crops that cocoa obviously is turned into cocaine. Mm -hmm. This has been one of the biggest tools, but many people suspect, and there's been studies that say this could cause cancer. Um, So this has been why. It was at some point the Colombian government ceased using it under the government of Juan Manuel Santos in around the uh, year 2015, I think, 2014.
1: I mean, what they're spraying is, is Roundup, go- right? I mean, that's what they're spraying is roundup. Exactly. There have been court cases in the U.S. that have found in favor of the plaintiffs who have um, had cancer because of their repeated exposure to Monsanto's roundup. So this is not like it's not a crazy idea. It's basically been proven in in court of law and by numerous uh, studies. Mm -hmm.
3: Not at all. And I think that American, I think what he was, a uh, um, he was a groundskeeper or something right. in America. He won something like $300 million. I think that's under appeal, obviously. But yeah, so one court case did side with them on that. So this has been a controversial thing. On the one hand, you say, well, no, we can't be spraying this over these civilian populations. And then it goes on to crops where it wasn't supposed to go and you damage innocent crops. So uh, you have to stop doing this. And anyway, you can't keep you're never going to win the war on drugs by force. You have to rethink the war on drugs and we have to get out there and work with those who are growing coca and work with them in order to find them alternatives. And I'll say, I've been covering the war on drugs from ground zero, starting with the coca farmers since around the year 2000, 2003, 2004. When I was last there, 2018, researching my book, I had never ever seen the coca growers so desperate to get out of coca than ever before. And there's a simple reason for that is because they are still receiving the same amount of money that they were 20 years ago for one kilo of coca paste. This is they take these bushes of the leaves of coca and they put it into like this paste. So just it's a brick, it's one step short of pure cocaine. They sell this one kilo of coca paste that then to the people who would take it to another jungle laboratory, and then it will become pure pure cocaine. But the price that they're selling their kilo of coca paste is round about $400, roughly. That hasn't changed in 20 years. The reason being is, you know, the, you know, cocaine is capitalism. So what happened is you had an open market 20 years ago where the coca farmer could sell to different people. He would be in a tiny village and different emissaries would come to that village and they'd say, oh, what's he offering you? All right. You know, I'll offer you a little more. The narco militias decided to take total control of the industry in the countryside. So they became the only person you could sell to. So they stabilized a price. And that obviously works to their favor and not to the farmer's favor. So what that means is every coca grower I met to 20 years ago, the coca growers were happy. They would have all of this money. And, you know, there was a tradition. They would go into town they would hire a couple of prostitutes. They would buy five bottles of whiskey. They would get drunk for 48 hours. They would take the money back home. But it was a whole tradition. That was what they did. It was like the the gold rush towns of America 150 years ago, deadwood. That's what it was like. But add a few more AK-47s and change gold for cocaine. You have an idea of what these towns were like. Today, they sell their coca paste. They've got enough for like five bottles of beer. Then it's on the way home. They just don't have the money anymore. And they feel that. Mm. And they don't want to be in this business anymore. They don't feel like they're making money because they're not. So if any imaginative, visionary government stepped forward and gave them a hand and said, hey, we're going to do this. We're going to have this program. We're going to get you out of this. I believe half of those coca Grows, this is anecdotal you know, speculation, but half of the ones at least who I spoke to like that would drop cocaine. They, because cocaine brings all of these problems with it. Once you get into the cocaine business, you yourself are rejecting the law. So if anything, if, if a man with a gun mistreats you, you can't go to the police anymore because you have coca growing in your backyard. So now you're living the life of an outlaw with all of that entails. You have no guarantees. So going back to the idea sorry of the spraying, both candidates, both Hernandez and Petro have said they don't want to spray. But the right wing is very firmly attached to spraying. They really want to get spraying again. And they've just, they're having these court cases, it's going through the courts, but they believe it's this imperative tool and they can immediately beat down coca crops with the spraying. And I'll also say, this comes in with the closeness between the men and women of Colombia's police force and army with the right wing the police are very bitter about spraying being taken away from them because it means they have to put that many more boots on the ground to physically rip out the coca, and that has extracted a terrible toll on them because they lay these landmines in these coca fields. Mm. When they know that the police are coming to rip this out, they just drop these landmines right under the bush, and the injuries these policemen and women have suffered are just they're awful so you can go to the hospital and they're missing legs missing arms missing half their faces i mean it's devastating so the police are very bitter about the fact that they don't get to spray because it puts them that much more in danger
0: Mm. i mean look here and all that it's it's crazy um and i'm reminded of like prohibition in the u.s when we had prohibition and you had uh alcohol being made underground in bathtubs and sometimes you'd get a bad batch and people would die because it was totally unregulated and then you had the rise of the power of the mafia because they were tied to, uh, you know, the underground illegal black market alcohol situation. Um, I mean, if, if you legalize taxes and regulated and, and, you know, you did that in the US, you, uh, that has far-reaching consequences, but, you know, you uh, internationally, maybe at the UN, you you come up with a plan to decriminalize worldwide um, wouldn't that transform this situation transform the economy of Colombia because if you know the drug trade to a large extent and actually you could speak to this whether or not this is accurate but if it's sort of like the economic lifeblood of colombia and and other places then if that's in a safe legal regulated market wouldn't that be the answer
3: I mean just to clarify it's not the economic lifeblood of the country i mean we we think it might not even be the principal export because obviously it's a black market the numbers are a bit Kind of hard to get come by, but I, we think it's probably you know it's it's not it's nowhere close to even five percent in terms of rough exports of the economy. You know, we think probably oil is probably bigger, um, but it's certainly an important part of the economy and certainly in the regions where it's produced. And just a quick note on what you said about prohibition. I think that really does prove what we've said about prohibition. Take the figure of prohibition. I I don't think I've seen any evidence that Al Capone was a particularly impressive man. I've seen no evidence that El Chapo was a particularly impressive man. I've seen no evidence that Pablo Escobar. But what happens is these guys would have been, you know, without the war on drugs, without prohibition, these guys would have been standing on street corners. Maybe they would have been extorting, uh, you know, local businesses. They would have been mugging people, burglarizing people. But prohibition gives them the chance to become millionaires. It gives them the chance to play in such a bigger market and re- take all of those rewards. And researching my book, the people who most want prohibition to continue are the drug traffickers themselves. Mm. And this is a lie that's often used against uh, those who are seeking prohibition. They always, certainly in Colombia, you know, whenever someone has said, oh, you know, we need to end the war on drugs, you would hear this quite common from the right wing who really want the war on drugs to keep going or prohibition or this approach, let's just say, they would say, oh, well, you must be in the pocket of drug traffickers. Well, drug traffickers want prohibition because, and one of them told me when I was interviewing, he said, why did I have to screw this up? At the moment, it's very clear. I export drugs. They try and get me. High risk, high reward. I don't get the high reward if there's no high risk. So if you legalize drugs, I'm out of business. And that's the fact and that's the truth of it this is these are men and women who have a high tolerance for risk and they want they want money very fast and that's how they want to live so they love living in this world of prohibition um, going to Colombia there's another side to this that I think is quite interesting as well a woman who kind of speaks on behalf of her community where I was hanging out interviewing these people and just seeing how coca and cocaine is big, At the beginning stage of it, it was in this region called Catatumbo, which actually translates as the land of lightning, because there's more lightning strikes there than anywhere else on the planet. Mm. It's there on the Venezuelan border. And she mm. made this really interesting um, observation. She said, because we all live outside of the system, because we're cocoa growers, we can't avail ourselves of demanding a school or demanding a hospital because, you know, we're in this kind of lawless zone. We actually help the government out because if we all became law abiding citizens and said, okay, no more coca, I demand all of my rights. Where's my health? Where's my social, any sort of social security, any sort of child care, any sort of help with raising my children, any education? The government just wouldn't have the money for that. So it was a kind of interesting observation about how this status quo everybody complains about ends up benefiting people. And a final thing, because I do think it's important to explain to a foreign audience, how the coca grower is seen. No one really considers the coca grower a criminal in Colombia. It's kind of understood that they grow up in these abandoned zones where there's no help from the, from the central government. And they're seen as the absolute lowest link of the drugs trade. And again, they do it for necessity. And to give you an example of how abandoned they are, Again, when I was in this tiny little hamlet, I mean, village doesn't even describe it. There was like 10 people, but they had built themselves a school and children would walk three, four hours every day there and then four hours back to study. And I said, where did the, and they said, and she said, oh, look at our school. And she was very proud of it. And she told me the story. It cost them around about $10,000. They were in the middle of nowhere. So they had to bring in all of the material just you know, to build this school, it was a single room, but a big building, all of the materials inside the teaching materials cost them $10,000. I said, Oh, you know, the government paid for that. She said, no, no, no. They had to set up a toll on the only path that goes through this entire region. It's a path that stretches, I don't know, 15 miles, but connects all of these tiny villages with the main road eventually there. So everything is the tiny dirt track that motorbikes can go along. And then people's houses are off there. And so any business that was conducted along that path had to pay a toll. The only business being conducted there is cocaine. People transporting coca paste or coca leaves or materials to be used. Cocaine paid for that school. Mm. I mean, that's the situation of the Colombian countryside. Where the hell was the government? Where was the local authorities? You know, what can we expect of a people so completely abandoned that a government isn't even there just to help the children? Wow. study and have some sort of future no cocaine is paying for that
1: wow well and one of the things i mean you describe Colombia as this sort of like incredibly beautiful and also very tragic place and one of the things that's heartbreaking reading your book is the number of people who are you know, in these desperate circumstances and the only way that they can provide for themselves, that they can, there was one man that you, um, that you document there who his wife is really ill and in order to afford her medication, he gets involved in the smuggling operation, he gets caught, he's going to jail now for the rest of his life. I mean, it really is just a heartbreaking, tragic story. Um, and you know, a lot of lives just fed like grist into the mill because of, you know, because of our policies, frankly, um, and the policies of the, the Colombian government that's been in power. But first and foremost, because of our policies. I'm curious to learn more, though, about the, um, the 2016 peace deal uh, between the government and the FARC. What were the terms of that deal? Was it popular at the time? What happened to it? Um, I know one of the pieces was was actually dealing directly with rural poverty and with providing services to these sort of, um, you know, lawless regions that are basically beyond the reach of the government at this point. Just give us a little bit more of the detail there and what happened with that.
3: (sighs) Exactly. So you have the official 2016 as the signing of this historic peace deal between the Colombian government and the FARC. And the FARC had been created almost 50 years beforehand. It was the oldest insurgency group, according to some metrics, uh, some people. It was the largest armed group in South in Latin America. It was incredibly disciplined. Um, Marxist-Leninist organization, they would call themselves. They had uh, way over 10,000 fighters, battle-hardened and they got into this peace deal, uh, this peace process with the government it took years of negotiating because, I mean, just, I mean, sometimes I think about what it must have been like for a Colombian negotiator to negotiate with a Marxist-Leninist doctrinaire over every comma and full stop of a <laughs> multi page document i mean it must have been but they did it and it was in havana the cuban government really uh kind of offered itself as a, as a base for these talks and yes as you say it was it was meant to be a new colombia it was going to we're going to invest in the countryside we're going to tackle the war on drugs by working with the coca farmers, a crop substitution plan, we're going to help the gorillas as well, these gorillas who, you know, in many cases, maybe don't know much else except how to be a jungle gorilla. We're going to help them to learn new skills. And um, that was the plan. And it was supposed to be this new chapter. We're going to end one chapter of Colombia's violence and the new Colombia beckons. But, you know, it became politicized and it became politicized. And from the right wing, again, this movement of Uribe led by former president Alvaro Uribe was the biggest critic of this peace process. And every single day it was nipping at the ankles of this peace deal. And one of the so I think what happens importantly politically is and there's kind of an interesting similarity with Brexit here that you have david cameron in the uk in 2016 again these two votes were very close to each other in terms of time david cameron says to the euroskeptics in the conservative party i'm going to put the vote to the british people and we're going to shut the book on this for a generation you keep you can't keep destroying my government arguing about europe mm. he loses juan manuel santos offers a referendum to the colombian people saying mm. i'm not going to have you just nipping at my ankles, you're going to see the Colombian people are going to vote for this peace deal. I was with the FARC and over beers, they were saying, you know, the FARC are very secretive. But, you know, after the second beer, they would say, you know what, Toby, if we get less than 75% approval for this peace deal, it's going to be a rocky road. In the end, the government lost. The wow. no vote was slightly higher than the yes vote. It came right down to it. And what's seen is that the government just didn't didn't push the peace deal as much as it could have done. It was kind of, you know, there was a, there was a lot of bitterness about the guerrillas that can't be denied. There was a sense that ma- perhaps the guerrillas weren't going to be, weren't as sorry as perhaps they should have been. Mm. But there was also distortion about what was within the peace process. There was a lot of WhatsApp messages. That's the kind of way that a lot of fake information in Colombia is transmitted. It's not so much on Facebook or Twitter, although that happens. It's WhatsApp. It's like really hard because, you know, you just get a message. And it's from, the trick is, it's, you know, the joke is, it's from your kind of crazy uncle or crazy arm. But it says something like, did you know that in the peace deal, it it regulates into law this? And it's just nonsense. But a lot of people ended up voting for it. And that's not to say there weren't legitimate criticisms of the peace deal. There were. But once the government lost that peace deal, it just kind kind of really was a horrible baptism for this peace deal. The government in charge who had overseen the peace deal itself sort of kind of you know kind of just things started to slip out of hand and i'll give you a perfect example the there was a town called brisenior uh sorry a municipality called brisenior which was determined this was going to be a pilot program for working with coca farmers in order to work with them to substitute crops and the plan was right every farmer in this um in this municipality will rip out their crops of coca as soon as they've done that the government will come in they'll give them a stipend that they and their family can live on for two years but they'll also be given a large chunk of money to start a new business like grow a chicken farm grow a, you know or whatever um and so what happened is All of these farmers, they get together. And it's a big debate amongst them, in fact. I was told by one of the guys who was at the debate, he said, can we trust the government? We've been burned by the government before. But the guy I was speaking to, he said, brothers, sisters, I've just come back from Bogota. This is way out in the countryside. And he told me he had just come back from Bogota, and he had gone to this part in the center of Bogota where uh, drug addicts just live on the street. Uh, it's just these kind of lawless parts where the police only go in with kind of tanks and it's open air drug markets, but it's also where kind of, you know, it, it's, it's homeless drug addicts live there. And he said, I've just seen what the drugs that we produce here, when we grow these crops, what they do to our own brothers and sisters who are Colombians. I don't want to do this anymore. The government is giving us a hand. I say, we take this opportunity. So they all rip out and they all start getting their stipends. But they become bureaucratic problems. The funds that were to help them grow that tomato farm, the coffee farm, they get stuck in the bureaucracy. The money doesn't come through. This town and municipality had completely destroyed its its crop. It had become reliant upon coca. And now there was nothing to take its place. So when I was there, it was this miserable, impoverished municipality. And everybody there was deeply bitter that they had trusted in this government. Another, and the central issue of this peace process was by the time that the FARC laid down its weapons, it controlled most of where the coca was grown. The FARC had come to rely on the cocaine industry. Just to be fair to the FARC, I do think it's important to clarify. The FARC say they only ever taxed people who would come in to buy the coca. They say they never were trafficking cocaine themselves. I think there's evidence to suggest some parts of the FARC were involved in trafficking cocaine, but it certainly wasn't endorsed openly by the leadership. They always denied it, just to kind of make that clear. But it was the single source, largest source of their income. So you have the FARC controlling all of this coca. And the deal needed to be that for the first time in Colombia's history, the central government was going to arrive to every corner of that country and impose a minimum of law and order. That was needed to be the deal of this peace process. The FARC laid down their weapon and the government does not arrive. Who Mm. does arrive? Every other criminal group who now sees that all of these fields of coca are up for grabs. It was a starting pistol, this peace deal. So these new groups swarmed and took over all of the coca crops. And I spoke to one farmer. He said that he was thinking about taking out the coca when the FARC left his zone. The new group arrived, and the first order was, if we catch one person removing one bush of coca, we're going to kill them. Mm. And so Colombia just missed this historic moment. And then because there was kind of the peace process, there was this wild moment of optimism in 2016, 2017. But then you started to see these new groups appear. And the Colombians kind of were presented with the election of Gustavo Petro or to go with Urabismo in the figure of Ivandulke, and they voted for the person who really said, "Well, I will continue with the peace process. I'm not its biggest fan, but you know, I will continue with it." And you know, he completely ignored it for four years, and therefore we've seen a cocaine continue to grow, and the security situation in the countryside to completely spiral out of control. Now there are so many different insurgent groups and narco militias. It's very difficult to see. A solution in the short term, at least in the past, you had just one group you had to negotiate with the FARC. Mm. Or now, there's so many groups no one can keep track of.
0: It sounds like the uh, the coca farmers and the, the FARC were set up. Isn't that what that sounds like to you?
3: I mean, again, it's like, is it malicious or is it incompetence? You never know. I mean, certainly I think- It sounded the malicious farmers... the way you
0: described it, where they put their guns down <laughs> yeah. and then everybody else comes in and it's like, this is our farms now. These are our farms now. That, like, that sounds malicious to me. That sounds like they were set I, I, again, up. Again, I
3: wouldn't- I, I don't I I wouldn't be so I mean I think that they can take certainly take the blame for having trusted in the Colombian government. I think there's a lot of reason to suggest those who trust in the Colombian government just end, tend to come to a bad end. And certainly the farmers, I think it was, was it bureaucratic incompetence? Was it uh was it uh was it corruption? Were these these funds that were supposed to help the farmers grow their businesses, were they stolen? Again, we just don't know. You know, there is levels of illiteracy in the Colombian countryside. I've heard um tell of meetings where the farmers were told to come and sign pieces of paper that were later revealed to be, oh, all of your money is now directed to the local mayor's office. So corruption is endemic again. I think the FARC, I, I think it was an extremely ambitious uh peace process. And the Colombian government has never really proven itself to be a particularly strong organism this the history of colombia has been a kind of weak central government and the power really lies in the hands of local clans across the country it's a weird country that you can go to any major village or any major kind of local state capital and just go to the park the guys were selling ice cream selling the tintor, the black coffee sit down buy a newspaper start chatting with them and say hey you know Who are the local powers here? And the guy who's selling coffee will tell you, oh, it's this family, this family, this family, this family. It doesn't really work that way if you go to a small village in London or in England. You know, it's it's a very feudal system in Colombia that these families who have run the country for sometimes centuries somehow just managed to stay in power. And so this very ambitious peace accord... The government itself kind of was then sort of lost interest and started bickering with the right wing. And, yeah, I just kind of ran out of steam. And I think people always thought, well, we have a little more time. The window's still open. We can still recover it. And now I think even the most optimistic person has to say the window has firmly Mm. slammed shut. And I should say one final thing you know, the guerrilla commanders were responsible for some horrific things. I think, you know, it's important to remember the car bombs that went off, there were bombs in businesses that went off, kidnapping of civilians. But I do have, I feel bad for these rank and file guerrilla members who did put down their weapons. And you know, that there was this baby boom amongst the rebels because they finally were able to have children. And what more of a vote of confidence and optimism for a future of life than to have a baby. Sign a peace deal, vote in favor of peace, put down your AK-47 and have a baby with your loved one. So there was this sense of optimism and then there's just been this merciless hunting down by armed groups, killing these guerrillas who bravely were the first to put down their gun. I think well over 200 have now been killed. Uh, Unarmed guerrillas who have sought to reintegrate themselves into civilian life, sought to put the war behind them and they've been murdered. And I think that is an honest disgrace, and the Colombia needs to be um, held responsible for that. Why are they not who, providing more protection?
1: Who is murdering them?
3: Well, I mean, there's different groups. I mean, I think, again, these narco militias who took over the coca zones, I think often in some cases it can be a way of, you know, if you carried a gun once, I just want to make sure you'll never be a threat again, so I'll mm-hmm. kill you. It can be their enemies from far right paramilitaries who just hate guerrillas for being guerrillas. In some cases, it was members of the armed forces. Uh, there's a lot of bitterness about this that many people in the armed forces think that the FARC should have spent more time in prison, for instance. Uh, that was something that was negotiated that they wouldn't really spend time in prison. And that really stuck in their craw, as I think the saying is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's been, there's a multiple, as uh, unfortunately in Colombia, when there are these killings, there's always a lot of suspects.
1: One other thing that I thought was just very interesting from your book was the way that the style choices and affect of the narcos changed um, over the time of, of your research. Could you speak to that a little bit and wh- what you sort of think that says about the culture broadly?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, what you essentially start off with, you start off with these um, figures who kind of come out of poverty in the beginning of the um narco trade. There are some exceptions, uh, but many of them, Pablo Escobar, uh, and many of them come from the countryside as well. And so they are in, they are at the beginning kind of, they are insurgents. They're not part of the establishment. And they like to be kind of these garish figures with big cowboy hats and kind of gold pistols and, you know, and their existence was, they thought, a middle finger to the rest of Colombia. You'd often see that. But again, cocaine, if you look at it as capitalism and you look at how it gets co-opted, it's a fascinating way to study this industry, I think. And over time, then they seek respectability. So then they start trying to send their children to the elite schools. And whereas in the 80s, I think there were some kind of elite institutions that would say no. No, you, you will not come in here. You know that we are at war with you, and you know even you can look back to uh, Rodrigo Lara, who was the Secretary of Interior, who you know denounced Pablo Escobar, and he said, you know, if anyone knows the history of that, the narcos, he denounced him. He said, we will carry out the war. You will not win, and he knew he was signing his death warrant there, um, and he was murdered by Pablo Escobar's killers for hire. And then recently we've seen the emergence of a new type of drug trafficker. These are called the invisibles. These are men tends to be who look like they're just businessmen. They, you know, they, they're in first class on the flight from Bogota to Miami, first class to go see their properties in Madrid. And they seek to present themselves as, uh, as I say, businessmen and they have bank accounts in that that's where their money is laundered. They have legitimate businesses where they can say, this is where, um, this is where they earn their money. But it's so it's so in- interesting, the change, because we even see it in that choice of women, which become one more commodity for these men to buy. A drug trafficker, because of the way he lives, believes the entire world is for sale. He believes he can buy politicians, he can corrupt uh, policemen, and he sees that in his choice of women. And what you would see before is these women, you would go to these nightclubs, and these women would be almost monstrously disfigured in their exaggerated operation for their breasts and their behinds. Uh, Again, it didn't look natural and it wasn't supposed to look natural. You would have these women who, a a woman I knew was complaining of chronic backache and she was 24 or something Mm. because she had had these incredibly large breasts. That was, she was doing that at the behest of the drug trafficker. That was her way of snagging a drug trafficker boyfriend. And then overnight, these drug traffickers decided the new taste in women was the very athletic kind of gym rat body. And they completely just tossed all of those women on the trash heap. So you would see them. They were yes, It was like wearing, it was so heartless, I thought. And it was a real insight into how they go through people, how they use even their romantic partners. When you just, when you're no longer any use, you're on the trash heap, just like last year's fashions and an entire body style. Was somehow deemed out of fashion. And so now when you go to these uh, narco clubs, and everyone knows who they are, if you go to the city of Cali and you have a good friend, he will say, oh yeah, that club is for narcos. Or if you go to Medellin, oh, that's where the narcos go partying. And you will see a certain uniform body type of the women and they're adjusting to the uh the surgeries are all paid for by their boyfriends obviously these narcos um and that's the new narco so they're very hard to see one of them was uh recently captured and he had become friends with all models and actresses and actors in the world of the telenovelas and it was very funny when he was actually arrested um the joke was how quickly the actors of Colombia's kind of um the A-list and B-listers were deleting photos of him on Instagram Blah, where they, they were seen together partying <laughs> together. Um, and he really infiltrated himself up to the top of that world of, wow. uh, of the entertainment, um, and that's the new. And but just uh, uh, since we're probably getting to the end, and there's one thing I do want to say. I think the world can look at Colombia and say, Colombia, why? why are you producing more cocaine than ever before? That's an absolutely legitimate question, and it gets to the heart of the drug war, it gets to the heart of the approach. But Colombia can also turn around and say to the rest of the world, what have you done to lower drug consumption? Because this business at the beginning does start because someone in a richer country wants to consume cocaine. That doesn't mean that the consumer is entirely to blame. But I do want to know, I don't even know if any government has any normal anti-drug program that has any chance of success. Why are people consuming more drugs than ever, more cocaine? Well, perhaps not more than ever. I should take that back. But why are so many people in Europe and in the United States consuming cocaine? What is that hole in their lives? How do we fix that? Because, again, we mentioned prohibition when we talk about the user, I don't look back on prohibition and say, you know who the real villain of prohibition was? That man or woman who just wanted a cocktail at the end of the week. No, the villains of prohibition are the people you know who used violence to take control of a black market, but also those who impose that policy on the country. I think those are the people who have the most to answer. And I do think we need a rethink of the drug war. And I think at some point, just like We started talking over the dinner table about what are we doing in Iraq? Why are we in Afghanistan? I think at some point that same conversation is going to come with the drug war. Why do we keep spending billions of dollars every year on this mission that clearly doesn't work? And I see a bipartisan thing, the left, civil liberties, and the right, just a tremendous waste of tax money. You know, I see people being able to reach across the aisle and say, We need to rethink this.
1: I certainly hope you're right. I mean, if there's one detail that I want everyone in the country to really grapple with from your book, it's the fact that the people who are most committed to the policy of prohibition and the war on drugs and the people who benefit the most from it are the most psychopathic (laughs) cartel killers on the planet. Those are the people this policy ultimately serves and who, you know, want to keep it in place. So um, listen, guys, the book is Kilo Inside the Cocaine Cartels. It is excellent. Um, And it has been really great talking to you today, Toby, to get your insights into both the election and also that, um, you know, sort of fundamental story about the U.S. and our own complicity in these crimes as well. Thank you, Toby.
3: Guys, I really enjoyed it. I had a great time today. It was a great chat. Thank you for inviting me on.
1: It's our pleasure. Thank you. All right. That was fantastic. That was
0: wonderful, man. Thank you. Phenomenal guest. Okay, great. Okay, thanks
3: again, guys. Hey, what are you you working on on now?
1: I see. Are you writing a novel? Is that what I see? On Twitter bio? (laughs) I
3: am writing a novel. Uh, Yeah, I should probably update that, man. Writing a novel. Jesus, that's hard, isn't it? I'm, I'm planning on actually going back and doing more stuff on. While the rest of the world continues to profit from cocaine, I figure I should profit from cocaine somehow as well. I'm thinking about a podcast, maybe, or a or a documentary, I'm going to go back to Colombia. I think in July. And I wanted to kind of can't let, you know, I wasn't sure how the cocaine world was going to take my book. So I figured I would leave them for a little bit. That's you know,
1: a good idea. Roll yeah. with it
3: guys. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. You know, just if I did annoy anyone, just, you know, get it out of your system, you know, and Hey guys, everything good. So mm-hmm. I feel, I finally feel I can go back and, you know, um, kind of avoid a few people. Uh, yeah. I, I want to do, um, I, I want the next thing I want to do, I think I want to do the war on drugs, but to relentlessly mock it. Uh, I think that's what it deserves at some point. Um, I want to do a, a podcast about how crazy the war on drugs is, but just humorously, that's mm-hmm. kind of what I'm trying to get together and uh, maybe a documentary series, but you know, carrying a camera around with these people is just, uh, it's, a, it's a hassle. You know,
1: yeah, as you can imagine. yeah. For sure. Well, keep me, um, stay in touch, keep me in the loop with whatever you're up to. And, um, you know, let me mm-hmm. know how I can be helpful.
3: No, fantastic. I really appreciate that. Thanks a lot, guys. I really had a great time. And yeah, um, yeah, let's do it again. All you right, got it.
0: Have good. a good
1: one.
3: Bye, Toby.
0: All right, so that was Toby Muse. Um, really, really interesting stuff there. There's a bunch of stuff that uh, stood out to me. First, let me ask you, you think Pedro screwed for the general?
1: I mean... He obviously understands the uh, inter Colombian politics better than I do. Yeah, but he got he got a big
0: lead right now. It's forty to twenty eight. He's forty.
1: Yeah, but like
0: the, he thinks all of them Everybody are less.
1: is lining up behind. Do you think that's it's hard other, to imagine? I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, he definitely he seemed pretty certain, right? Whereas I did read some other analysis that was like it's going to be close. So I don't know. We won't we won't write so write he him seems off yet. to
0: think the right wing guy is going to win. You read one that says it's going to be close. Yeah, I mean forty to twenty eight. You would have to coalesce like everybody.
1: I haven't seen anybody who's like Pedro's uh, got this. He's got it in the bag. Yeah. Why
0: is it always with the left candidates? Like Bernie. Like Bernie wins the three contests, and we're like. Well, if he wins, it'll be by a razor's margin. It's like, he won the first three. What are we talking about? He shouldn't curb stomp his way to victory now.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting what he said. He was all ready to run against the sort of like establishment right. Right. right And now that was no problem. Right. But now Mm -hmm. this guy, I mean, it is the parallels with Trump really are pretty wild. This is the same thing with Trump. I mean. He doesn't didn't have any this back in twenty sixteen. He didn't have any like a legislative record. Yeah, it
0: was a benefit that he was outside of the political
1: system. Yeah, so he could just say, drain the swamp and I'm Mm -hmm. this businessman I understand how the system works, so I'm not subject to this corruption and people People bought it, but then I mean, it sounds exactly the same. But then, who are the forces that are behind him? It's fucking Paul Ryan's tax cut. That's That's what you're actually going to end up with, you know. Vote
0: vote for Pedro, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the Napoleon Dynamite movie. Remember that? (laughs) Vote for Pedro. But if you're in Colombia for real, vote for Pedro. I had I had a good friend in high school who was Colombian. Uh, His name was Kevin. One of the hardest working guys I've ever met in my life. He had like three jobs at one time. Super sweet guy. Um, and I think he still had family there, and he visited there. He always used to tell me, like, hey, man, you should come to Colombia.
1: I would love to go. Um, Soccer actually was telling me that he had visited, he had gone to Medellin, and, mm-hmm. you know, found the country to be incredibly, incredibly beautiful. And, like, I mean, our policies here have just... I mean, we have sown so much violence and chaos and destruction there and in so many other countries in well,
0: yeah, the world. The thing he said about... I mean, the drug war stuff is crazy, but then the thing he said about... Like overnight, they change the preferred body type. Yeah,
1: what do you think about that?
0: I've, I, I find it hard to believe that, like, what you got these, you know, drug, drug cartel leader who's like, I don't like that anymore. Now I like that. It's yeah. Like, what are you talking about? What does that mean?
1: Yeah. So like, is your
0: even your romantic interest? You're just like posturing just for society. Like, what does that even mean? For
1: show. Yeah.
0: That's so weird. Isn't it? That's super weird. Yeah. I know.
1: I thought that whole anecdote was very was very interesting as well. That's why I asked him about it. And um, he talks about it in the book. And he also talks about um, the woman that he referenced there who's 24 years old and who, you know, had these like ridiculously large fake tits and all this chronic back pain because of it. When she was cast out, I mean, it completely destroyed her life. Like wow. she was like – the last he heard of her, um, she was like wandering the streets, well, homeless. She
0: should get a flight to Miami because she'll literally she'll be lost welcomed her with open arms in Miami. <laughs> like, I got this idea of like, oh, the athletic body's in now. It's like if you go to Miami, <laughs> they still like some tits and ass. <laughs> you so know, she
1: she could still, yeah, maybe there's still hope for her somewhere.
0: Yeah, but, but that does, yeah, yeah it's it's
1: it's a really sad story. The part that we didn't get into um, that is also very interesting. is he he genuinely goes. From, you know, the planting of the coca bush to the people who pick it, to how it's processed in the lab, to how it's smuggled and, you know, embeds with these high level narco traffickers. But he also embeds with the police and the Coast Guard who are on the other side of that mm. and, you know, portrays them in a very human way. He's not mm-hmm. turning anybody into like, you know, without merit <laughs> and turning them into caricatures or villains. Um, and... The way that they justify it to themselves and their own understanding of how they're sort of just on this treadmill or, as he puts it, this stationary bike where you sweat and you, you know, your legs turn to jelly and you put everything into it. And at the end of the day, you haven't moved an inch like the people who are on the front lines. They see it firsthand. Well, yeah,
0: because there are entrenched interests on both sides that have built their lives around their side of the rat race, you know? So you have all these lives that are contingent upon cranking, you know, making the drugs, cranking them out, getting paid. Then you have a whole like, you know, police industrial complex, government industrial complex on the other side. That's like, well, this is how we make our living is by stopping you. Yeah. And so you you have to, I mean, you have to fundamentally change that system. And even if you do legalize tax and regulate, which I'm an advocate of, like he said, the current cartels are going out of business because they're not the best in a competitive market. They are the best with a monopoly as it's illegal underground right. which is fundamentally different that's <laughs> so right. that's like exactly it's going right. to even doing the right thing is going to is going to have there's going to be a, a transition period of massive instability it's just that in the long run that's obviously better for everybody involved in future generations
1: yes uh, obviously and the farmers uh the coca farmers themselves are you know are sort of victim here they have no other option in terms of like their economic livelihood this is the only path to having any sort of um any sort of like, basic income. It's no
0: different than making alcohol, you know?
1: It's no right. And, and so, you know, it's funny to me—it's not really funny, but it's interesting to me and tragic to me—that the debate that's happening is like, all right, is our approach to pull the coca bushes out by hand, which is extremely dangerous for the police, and they understandably hate and despise? Mm-hmm. Or do we, like, spray everything with this cancer-causing Monsanto roundup? When the obvious, say, neither one of those is going to work. They're going to replant, it grow, baby. Let it gonna grow. replant <laughs> those bushes in a week. The answer is what he talks about. You have to have a program that people actually believe in and that the government follows through with of crop substitution so that there is another life. Like people are not they don't want to be in this business. They would like to be in a legitimate the farmers I'm talking yeah, about. They, they have no like other to option to grow a legitimate crop. And be able to earn a living from it. All you have to do is actually make that available. And yeah. but that's, you know... But
0: honestly, I hate our childish mentality when it comes to stuff like this. Because it is no different. We have legalized alcohol in this country. You can go to the liquor store at 7.30 a.m. and buy enough alcohol to fucking kill yourself by the afternoon. Mm-hmm. We're totally fine with that. Everybody's fine with that. But all of a sudden, oh, cocaine, that goes too far. Bitch, Adderall is cocaine in a pill. And people get prescribed that by their doctor. Don't give me... Like this babyish idea like let the people grow the product have a legalized Mm -hmm. taxed and regulated marketplace where you keep it relatively safe as safe as cocaine can be and then if people want to get high as a kite and jaw all day and jitter and talk really fucking fast about some business they're going to create let them do it and if they end up dropping dead at 47 from a heart attack that's their prerogative that's their prerogative you know like it's just that's the idea that we can try to through law and order and brute force, try to like take a market out of existence that there will always be a natural market for. It's like saying we're going to wage a war on sex. Nobody's allowed to have sex anymore. People are going to find a way to fucking have sex. That's just what it is. That's part of our nature. Yeah. Same thing with getting high. People are going to find different ways to get highs. Uppers, downers, hallucinogens, psychedelics, whatever you want to call them. It's going to happen. So the question is, how do you manage that in a responsible way where you also account for everybody's economic livelihood and well-being? And we've waged a war on human nature for decades and decades now, and it ain't never going to work.
1: He mentioned um, Plan Colombia. Which was signed into law uh, under Bill Clinton. And um, Biden was actually one of the major sort of backers and like intellectuals, I guess, behind behind the plan. And I mean it was classic war on drugs. We're going to spend all this money. We're going to fumigate the fields. We're going to, you know, give uh, Colombia a lot. We're going to help militarize Colombia and take this like direct militarized approach to the war on drugs. And it's devastating what he says. Their goal in three years was to cut the coca crop by 50%. And I mean, not only did they not do that, it's larger than ever before. Like, it's so obvious that everything that we've done in terms of, you know, banning, criminalizing prohibition has been a complete failure on every level, only benefits like the worst, most vicious killers in, you know, the drug smuggling world. And yet, we just continue down the same path.
0: Yeah, but I'll even go a step further. Even if even if that plan worked, I'm still against it. I still don't think you should do that. I still think as a matter of principle, it's fucked up to take some poor farmer in Colombia and say, you can't grow that because, you know, Maggie in fucking San Bernardino is getting high and mommy doesn't like that. Right. Fuck Maggie. <laughs> Fuck Maggie. Is she over 18? Okay, let Maggie make her own goddamn decisions. And if she right. ends up making some poor life decisions, it's called... Everybody's got people who go through that shit, mm-hmm. you know. So yeah, I don't well, even, even if it a- worked, I still would be against it. I still think it's fucking stupid.
1: Yeah. Well, not only that, but um, the way prohibition works, just like it did with alcohol, is then you uh, incentivize the most concentrated, potent forms of the drugs. So you see this, like with opioids. Most people. Don't overdose on the, you know, Oxy, overdose on fentanyl on the Oxy prescription that they're getting from their doctor. What happens is they get addicted. They get cut off. They go to the street, go to the black market, and in the block, black market, they end up with fentanyl. Yes. And that's how they end up dying.
0: What that comes from is you have unscrupulous drug dealers who cut their product they we- they water down their product they they cut their product as it's called with something stronger to try to make up the difference and sometimes the dosage isn't right and that's how you die from fentanyl overdose well a because if overdose. it's
1: more concentrated then it's easier to smuggle it's less costly and less difficult to ship. Right. That's how you end up with that's how you end up with that. In any case, I think the book is really a compelling read. Um I think he did a great job laying out, you know, the sort of reality on the ground and what this actually looks like and the folly of our policies and the implications of this election. So, thank you to Toby and thank you to you guys also for watching and supporting us.
0: That's right. And uh, if you guys wouldn't mind making our day and making us happy forever and making us love you forever, you can go sign up on Substack for $5 a month and get the video of the show a day early. And for everybody else, you could sign up for free on Substack and get uh, the, the audio podcast as it drops the day after on Saturday. So thanks to everybody who already has signed up on Substack. We're proud to say that we don't read any ads and we don't take any ad money for this podcast it's you know source of pride that not many other podcasts can say they do that there are some but not many can say they do that and so you know it's just something that uh, I really take pride in
1: indeed we love the opportunity to have these sort of longer conversations dive into these topics too so thank you guys we love y'all we'll see you next week